Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 30. I'm going to ask you to turn there either in your electronic version or the hard copy you may have. You want to be in the passage because um, that'll be the most effective way to listen uh, as we walk through this passage. Normally I read the passage and then pray and then explain and apply, but today I'm going to pray first and then read the passage and explain as we go uh, because of the length of the section itself and some of the complexity. There's some kind of weird stuff in there that we wouldn't be used to. It's a a document that's at least an episode that goes back 4,000 years, so there's some explanation for sure that will be needed along the way. You remember where we are in the story now. Jacob has just spent 14 years uh, in order to get his two wives, Rachel and Leah. He wanted Rachel, but he was uh, fooled into marrying Leah and then Rachel for seven more years, and then the two concubines that come with. Nothing is simple for Jacob, and much of this is his own doing. Um, but Laban, he meets his match in the person of Laban. Laban can outswindle this swindler with the best of them. And so 14 years later, he's, Joseph has been born, um, a full household, but yet Jacob owns nothing. He's been in servitude to Laban this whole time. He wants to have his own household, his own life. He wants to go back home. Uh, he was only there because he was escaping the wrath of Esau because of his own sin. But God used it in his providence to bring him the family he had now. And he wanted to leave, but he had no power to leave, even though legally his commitment to Laban was over. So this is the story before us of God bringing Jacob home. Let's pray first, and then we'll begin reading. Let us pray. Lord, as we read your word, please help us to understand what is happening as we work through this passage, and ultimately to see how it impacts our faith in our lives. I pray for alertness and anticipation as we give attention to your holy word this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is about Jacob going home. Now the passage also serves as a bit of a model for what we see throughout the scripture, this theme of going home. Let's go to the passage now, starting at verse 25 of Genesis 30. That's where we left off. And we'll go into the first 21 verses of chapter 31. I have that portion on the outline. This is God's word. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go For you know the service that I have given you. He wants his legal just dessert to be able to leave now, after he's done his service, to go home. The home of promise. The promised land. His intention was never to stay in Padam Aram, which is where Syria is today. He didn't want to stay there. And by God's providence, now is a time when he can appeal to Laban on the basis of legal grounds to go back 14 years after giving service to Laban. But not so fast, Laban says. And you could just expect this from Laban. This is exactly who he is. He knows that while Jacob has the legal right to go, what's he going to bring with him? Um, It wasn't money in the bank account that was used for legal tender. It's how much livestock you had. How much livestock you had gave you trading power. It gave you the ability to barter for things and buy things. The more livestock you commanded, the more employees you would have, the more power you would have. Employees who work for you as your 
as, as herdsmen were also your militia. They were your defenders. Remember Abraham, um, when it was time to go rescue Lot, he takes his workers, who were herdsmen, and they go wage a battle. Uh, this is how it was in 2000 B.C. But Jacob, he knows he's legal, but he's got no, he has no capital, no way to really go. And Laban knows it. Look at verse 27. Chapter 30 we are in. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it to you. Laban is desperate to keep Jacob around because Laban gets nothing but richer and richer and richer with Jacob under his company. He even reveals something about himself. He's not a man of faith. He's a man of worldly means. And he'll do whatever he can to figure out how to stay in that position that he finds himself. And he'll even use divination, which is an occult practice, to see what God's will or the God's will might be. And he knows, and this could be surmised without divination, that the reason he was doing so well is because Jacob was there. And so he wants to make it worth Jacob's while to stay. Uh, What can I pay you? Stay with me. Keep working for me and under me. Verse 29. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. I mean, everything's grown under me. But you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now when I shall provide for my own household, when should I get my own stuff? He wants to go home, and he says to Laban, come on, this is only fair. You've gotten all this from me. When do I get mine? He was weary of being in this foreign land under the oppressive thumb of Laban. He wants to realize the promises of God. And they were in Canaan, not in Syria. And then, of course, Laban, he's not going to let go. Verse 31. What shall I give you? Uh, Come on, Jacob. Jacob said, you shall not give me anything if you will do this for me. Jacob realizes at this point he's not going to get a clean getaway here. If you'll do this for me. Now Jacob goes into scheme mode too. I will again pasture, pasture your flock and keep it. So I'll keep doing my job. Let me, though, pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb. Now, there wouldn't have been a lot of these, but they would have been obvious. Solid-colored animals, but then the speckled and the spotted ones and the black ones would be obvious. Let me take those. Those will be my wage. And I'll start pasturing them along with yours. We'll know which ones are mine. I'll keep them separate, but we'll, I'll keep working for you and build up your flocks, but pay me by giving me these particular animals. Let me pass through and remove them. They'll be my wages. Verse 33. So my honesty, which is a funny thing for Jacob to say, for my honesty will answer for me later. You'll know whether I've done this right or not. When you come to look into my wages with you, Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. So gather what's happening. He'll take all of the normal flocks that he's been keeping for Laban, and he'll continue. They'll multiply. He'll grow them. They'll sell them. They'll, they'll, have all, they'll, they'll keep growing up his, uh, all his inventory. But he'll take for himself uh, these piebald or these uh, modeled, as it says in the text, uh, these that have spots or stripes or the, the black ones. Uh, he'll keep them for himself. So you'll know whether or not I'm cheating or not. Laban seems to agree with this, but look what Laban does. You could always expect this from Laban. Laban says, good, 
let it be as you have said. But that day, the very day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. So he steals away the ones that, Laban, or that Jacob would have taken before he can get to him. And he takes them for himself. And then he says, verse 36, And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. He gets three days away, takes what Jacob was going to take. Now Jacob's stuck with the normal flock that he has of Laban, none of which are his. Three days apart. The text doesn't record Jacob's innermost thoughts about what just happened to him from Laban, but he clearly could see what was going on. Verse 37, then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar. Now this is where it gets interesting. 2000 BC, um, there was a practice apparently, a superstitious practice that some herdsmen did. And this is what Jacob's doing. Now Jacob knows the promises of God are true to him and that God's going to bring him home some way. But Jacob can't get away from his normal scheming and he looks for a way to start making sure that when the animals breed, they'll be spotted and striped once. And look what he does. Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar, verse 37, and almond and plane trees, and peeled white streaks in them. They would have been dark, but then he peels white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks, so they would look speckled or striped. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. At least that's what he thought. The, the Bible's not affirming that's what happened because of that. It's just simply saying that's what Jacob attributes it to. A bit of a superstition where if they breed when they're looking at these speckled sticks, striped sticks, they will have speckled and striped offspring. Whatever the case, that's the practice that he employed, but we see clearly it's God who does the work of multiplying here. Now, 14 years of servitude, it's going to take six more years for Jacob's prosperity to raise to the level to where he could be his own person. But it would have taken a lot longer if it were not for God's supernatural activity here. 20 years total Jacob will take serving Laban. Verse 40, we continue in chapter 30. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks towards the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. So he starts building up his flock. Laban's flock are having the offspring and they're striped and they're spotted. He takes them and gives them. And his flock starts growing where Laban stays similar. We know because the passage describes it as such in a bit. Whenever, verse 41, the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Now, he does all this, and this is his scheming. Know this, though, as a lesson to us as the people of God. If God promises something, you don't have to manipulate things to make it happen. But we see what he does, not surprised by Jacob's scheming. He just cannot shake his tendency to manipulation. Verse 43, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, 
female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. As you grow in livestock, the more you'll have servants, the more you'll have need to run the operation. And he's growing at, at rapid speed, faster than should be possible. Soon Laban would have no physical recourse to keep him there. Jacob would be able to leave. And this made Laban's household very uneasy. Look at verse 1 of chapter 31. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Before, he wanted to keep him around because he was an asset to the corporation. Now, he sees him as a threat. And he no longer... So, if Laban treated Jacob like he did when he was his friend, what is it going to be like now when he's not? Can you imagine Laban like this? Well, we're going to get to see Laban as this episode unfolds. God speaks a clear message now to Jacob. Verse 3, then, it was at this point when the tensions were rising, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Go home, Jacob. It's time for you to go home, and I will be with you. No scheming necessary. Now's the time. I will be with you. In this phrase, these five words, I will be with you, become very foundational for the whole of the rest of the Old Testament whenever God moves his covenant along, whenever he moves things closer to the coming of Christ. Remember, the Bible is about Jesus. In this episode with Jacob is all part of God building his promises to the the point of bringing Jesus himself. And so he will use this phrase, I will be with you. It makes sense then that Jesus would be called Emmanuel, God with us, culminating in Christ. But I will be with you, Jacob. We'll hear this again with Joseph multiple times. We'll hear it again with King David. We'll hear it again throughout the different figures in Scripture that God places his covenant hand upon. Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Now, Jacob gathers all of this is of God. He struggles against his flesh to always want to manipulate. But when push comes to shove, at this moment in Jacob's life, he will admit this is because God has willed it. God promises to be with Jacob as he goes home. Despite all the wealth and the prosperity and the power he has, for him to actually be able to go home, he would need God's help in doing it. This promise of God surely encouraged Jacob in his pilgrimage. And he gave Jacob instruction all along the way. But here's the one catch point. What am I going to do to convince Rachel and Leah that we should leave their father's home and inheritance, essentially? That's a big, a big move to ask of his two wives and their concubines, this complexity of a family he now has. But he knows in Mesopotamia that it has to be done this way, and these women would be wise to say, why should we go to you with you to a foreign land, leave our father's wealth and in his security to follow you? Where were they in this whole discussion? Verse 4 of chapter 31. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. And he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. In other words, the reason why everything has grown up as you have seen it grow up, all this prosperity I have now experienced, opposed to your father's, 
All of this is because God has been with me. He recognized it's not because I'm smarter than Laban. In fact, Jacob might have just said, he's got me on that, in that department. He's more, he is more manipulative. He's more of a shyster than I am, he might even think. But when it comes down to it, I think that God is the reason for all of this. The God of my father has been with me. And he tells Rachel and Leah this. He goes on in verse 6. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. Do you see the change in Jacob? Now we'll see he's still going to struggle with his manipulation. But he's recognizing when it all comes down, it's only if God wills this to be. And God has willed this to be. Verse 8. He just delineates how it's proof that God is with him. If he said, Jacob, the spotted will be your wages, then all the flocks were spotted. If he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore striped. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Jacob attributes his success to God. And that's no small confession for this chief manipulator. It's a profession of faith in God's covenant promises. And for all his scheming, in the end, Jacob knows who has caused this to unfold. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Furthermore, he says in verse 10, In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. In verse 13, this great covenantal promise revisited. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now, in light of that covenant, that covenant renewed, rise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Jacob, go home on the basis of my promises. Jacob here recounts God reassuring him of his role in God's unfolding covenant. And he tells it to Rachel and Leah so they can see it and they can weigh the evidence. Verse 14, we have the response. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? They see it for what it is. For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. He gave us to Jacob, but then took all the money the whole time. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Special note, the first time we have recorded Rachel and Leah agreeing with each other about anything. Everything is aligned for Jacob to go home. After 20 years in exile under the oppressive hand of Laban, it was time for Jacob to depart and go home. Now, here we go again. This inconsistent character, Jacob. It would have been fine at that moment to just pick up and leave. Trust God that he would provide for him and protect him from Laban as he left. He could have boldly stated his legal claim and his intentions and marched out of Syria. But Jacob being Jacob, even though he knew it was God's will and he's following what God said, he's still going to try to... Have you ever done this? You know what God's will is for you to do, but you still want to control how it unfolds. 
If God promises you something, believer, you do not need to be sneaky, quiet, or hide about it. He waited, though, for the right time in his mind, and this would be sheep-shearing season. Look at verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired at Padan Maram, to go to the land of Canaan, to his father Isaac. Now he does all this without talking to Laban about it, stating what he's going to do, which he had every right to do. When did he do it? Verse 19. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household goods. A pretty despicable way to leave, if you think about it. Now, why do you think, verse 19, Rachel stole her father's household gods? What are these? Well, we know a little bit about this from archaeology. Not a whole lot, though, and this is referred to again in the passage that comes next week. There could be a few things. The household gods could be little statues of animals that represented the livestock that he kept, almost like little mini voodoo dolls that if you uh, prayed to those or prayed to the gods concerning those, they would be multiplied and it would be attached to his prosperity somehow. So maybe she stole them for that reason, the idea that this would hurt his prosperity. It could be family members, could be actual people statues, uh, little, little figures of ancestors, people that were alive, that tied... Uh, the divination that he did earlier, maybe it had something to do with that. And by taking these tools of divination away, Laban wouldn't be able to find them and catch them. I think the most likely, the most likely explanation is that these were trinkets in the home that had some sacred value to pagan homes in these days. And it also tied you to that home. So if later you could produce one of these statues, that would prove you were part of Laban's house. So when Laban dies, she can go back and make claim on an inheritance holding these household gods. That's a likely explanation, but we don't know for sure. But the summary verse, verse 20 and 21, really catch, catch us up to where we are as Jacob heads home. Verse 20, the summarizing verse, shows the break from Laban. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean. See the separation? Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. Here we have Jacob finally going home. So why is this story in the Bible, do you think? Any story that's in the Bible, any episode in the Bible is for our edification. It there's purpose. God has it there for. I think at base level, we have another display of how God's sovereign providence and plan works out, even when we are inconsistent in the midst of it. We've seen this over and over again with the patriarchs, and we'll see it again. We see it in our own lives. But there's also a recurring theme that we pick up here that is like a thread throughout Scripture. This going home motif being in exile, and then rescued by God for the purpose of going home. This is a common thread in the Bible. A pilgrimage towards a final home. This is not where we'll stay. We're going somewhere else. We're in this place. It's a mess. Our sin contributes to it. Maybe our sin got us there, but God, he protects us, he provides for us, and he delivers us from it to home. 
And that's true of our lives. Life is a God-led pilgrimage towards a final home. And that's the story of the fabric of the Bible. Life for believers is always a pilgrimage towards our ultimate home. Now, there's painfulness on that pilgrimage. Sometimes we bring it on. Other times it comes to us. But we are going home. That is the message, at least the theme of Scripture, that he provides for us, protects us, and delivers us finally to home. Where have we seen this before? Well, Jacob could recount his grandfather Abraham. Because of Abraham's sin, on two different occasions, finds himself in Egypt. In both cases, God, by supernatural means, delivers him back to his home, back to the promised land. Where will we see it in the future? Most vividly, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel in slavery, under the thumb of the Egyptians, 400 years under slavery in the pharaohs. Yet God protects and incubates and grows and blesses the nation. And when it's time, he delivers them from that slavery that they only ever knew. Generation after generation of Israelites never knew a free day. And then God delivers them from the bondage of that slavery in miraculous ways that could not be accounted to Moses or to their prowess or any other man-caused reason. Nothing. All of it because God delivers them. That's the picture that is referred to multiple times in the Old Testament after the Exodus happens. Because it's a picture of God's deliverance unto the promised land. He brings them to the place that he had promised. We'll note it happens several other many times, like Ezra and Nehemiah. They don't stay slaves in Babylon and Persia, but God raises a remnant, brings them back to the promised land, always symbolizing what it is that God does for everyone who's a believer, ultimately. Telling us something of our destination so that we know the purpose of our life. We have Jacob's experience before us. Because of his sin, 20 years under Laban, far away from home, but God protects him, provides for him, and now delivers him back. Pilgrimage is a theme for your life. You are on a pilgrimage. This life you're living is not your end. It's, it's, you're not even a comfortable citizen to some degree. Peter, writing to the church in that age and to us, beloved, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh. In other words, Christians, you are not wired for this place. So be careful because the wiring of the place will want to suck you in. Peter says, you're sojourners and you're exiles, so abstain from the passions of the flesh. The reason why there's such a struggle you feel, that's not unnatural. That's what happens when citizens of God's kingdom in heaven, ultimately, to come, find themselves in this world with all the mess and mix that is occurring. Philippians, Paul writes, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. So we're looking forward to our home. That's the natural. You should sense this about your existence. Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Strangers and aliens, that's what you are. It's not our home. God is bringing us from exile to home. In this knowledge that we are on a pilgrimage, on earth. This will help give meaning to your lives. You'll be able to understand why there are the tensions that you sometimes feel. It also gives you purpose because if you love people, you want other people to have their citizenship in heaven. So you don't just ignore other people while we're in this place. We seek for ways to express to them how they too can be citizens of heaven through Christ. 
The meaning of our life is really ultimately determined by its destination. And brothers and sisters, you're going home. You're on a pilgrimage to home. In 2 Corinthians 5, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5.8, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Jesus promised in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. In Hebrews 11, talking about Abraham. Remember what motivated Abraham to go to the promised land? It wasn't to get that piece of dirt. He went to live in the land of promise, it says in in Hebrews 11. In this foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. He was looking forward to a city that has foundations. Not these earthly cities that have no foundations. They crumble and fall. He was looking for the city whose designer and builder was God. Jacob's experience is another picture of God leading his people home. We saw this with Abraham, and God led him home. We saw this with Israel. God led Israel home. We also see this in the full story of redemption. When Adam, representing us, sinned in the garden, where did he go? He was exiled from the garden. He was thrown out of the home prepared for him. As John Milton says, paradise was lost on that day. But God provided a way for Adam and for us to still go home. By sending the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, he comes to deliver us from the exile of our sin and lead us to home again. Paradise eventually restored. Jesus himself has come to protect you. He saves you. He provides for you. And he leads you through this pilgrimage until you make it home. This world is not our home any more than Padam Aram was Jacob's home. This is what prompted, no doubt, the hymn writer to say, When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy will fill my heart. That's why another hymn writer wrote, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I've already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far is a grace that will lead me home. Let's pray. O Lord, you have placed us on a pilgrimage as individual believers, but also collectively as your church on this earth. O Lord, may the knowledge of our ultimate destination give us a boldness and an urgency in our lives today. May we set our affections on things above, not as a way of escaping the toils or the responsibilities or the callings of this life, but as a way of reminding us, setting us straight about what is forever, as a way of reminding us of our purpose on this earth, to be beacons of light for Christ, so that many others can be assured of their ultimate home, and for still many others to realize their need for heavenly citizenship through Christ. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's together turn in our hymnals to 